Wonder Things Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Dialogues. Number six, the influence of gaming on speculative fiction with James Sutter, Shauna Germain, Andrea Phillips, and Michael R. Underwood. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison, welcoming you to a special edition of the Roundtable podcast, the Roundtable Dialogues. This is dialogue number six. You would think we'd have more with a name like the Roundtable podcast, but hey, I'm catching up. That's that's just the way things work around here. Uh, this episode of the Dialogues, where we gather together uh, a, a constellation of stellar luminaries of the genre fiction spec fic community, uh, is going to focus on the impact and influence of games on speculative fiction. I have no idea where this is going to go, but I guarantee you it's going to be an intriguing conversation. Let me first briefly introduce you to our panel of guests seated immediately to my right in the sumptuous Roundtable Podcast virtual studio. Dear friends, I can tell you there are precious few people who actually know why Tybalt cancels out Capafero unless you've studied your Agrippa. And one of them is with us at this very moment. Having achieved a BA in creative mythology, and a master's degree in folklore and being a veteran of the 2007 Clarion West Writers Workshop, Michael R. Underwood is a most informed and eloquent storyteller. He's written urban fantasy with his novels Geekomancy, Celebromancy, and the forthcoming Hexomancy. Weird fantasy meets superheroes with Shield and Crocus, supernatural YA with The Younger Gods, and as Tor Books launches its new imprint line, it will include two novellas in Michael's latest and perhaps most intriguing series, The Genrenauts. He's also the North American sales and marketing manager for Angry Robot Books and part of the Hugo-nominated Skiffy and Fanty Show podcast. He also has a secret nickname whispered among the elite gaming circles of the world, The Dice Whisperer. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Underwood, always a pleasure to have you sitting in the chair, man. Thank you for making the time. Thanks so much. I stand ready with my D20s and other <laughs> soda <did> polyhedron. <laughs> poised. Poised. I respect that in a man. Uh, next around the table, now, not many people can put altering reality on their resume, but Andrea Phillips can. She's an author, an award-winning transmedia writer, and a game designer, including ARGs, or alternate reality games, you see what I did there, whose projects include Zombies Run, The Meister's Path for HBO's Game of Thrones, and a marketing campaign for the movie 2012 titled The 2012 Experience. Her book, A Creator's Guide to Transmedia Storytelling, is used to teach digital storytelling at universities worldwide. Her immersive fiction includes the successfully kickstarted serial The Daring Adventures of Captain Lucy Smokehart and the recently released The McKinnon Account, a story that unfolds through emails and text messages. Now, that last one is actually a prototype for a much larger project she's hoping to launch later this year called The Attachment Study. Her short fiction has aired on Escape Pod and appeared in the Jews vs. Aliens anthology. Her debut novel, Revision, due out on May 5th from Fireside Fiction Company, was declared in a starred review on Publishers Weekly as, quote, a terrific SF debut. Her fresh voice will be very welcome in the SF world. And dear friends, I can tell you it's going to be very welcome in this upcoming dialogue. Andrea Phillips, thank you so much, ma'am. I'm glad you could make the scene. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm, my cheeks are burning in shame from <laughs> that introduction. My work is done here. I ride off into the sunset. <laughs> uh, next around the table, there is only one Vorpal Blonde in the world, and she's here in our virtual studios right now. Writer, editor, poet, activist, and Schrodinger's brat. Shauna Germain has been transforming the face of fiction and gaming with startling honesty and articulate prose. She has over 350 poems, essays, short stories, novellas, articles, and more in the world, and her literary adventures have taken her to Amsterdam, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Germany, Italy, Nicaragua, and more. See, I just had to go with the dialects on that one. <laughs> She's taught classes in writing, publishing, media, and photography, and is currently an associate fellow at the Attic Institute in Portland, Oregon. Her awards are too numerous to list, but I'll mention three of them here. The first, she was named editor of the Best New Educational Product by the Specialty Coffee Association of America. And I mention that because, as we all know, coffee is the elixir of life, and when the high priests of coffee anoint you, that's pretty damn badass. Uh, But she also was awarded the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Game for Numenera in 2014 and received 10 Annie Awards, including Product of the Year for Numenera that same year. She got those awards because, in addition to her many achievements, she's also the lead editor for the Numenera role-playing game from Monty Cook Games. Shauna Germain, I am delighted to have you on the roundtable. Thank you, ma'am, for making the time. Thank you for having me and for that introduction. I, I feel like I want to know that person. <laughs> <laughs> That's my job. I want to make everybody's background like a or- superhero origin story. That's <laughs> That's my job. And and last but certainly not least, dear friends, I'm fairly confident there is only one person at this table with a fully functional death ray and an unnatural tolerance for blueberries. James Sutter is a journalist, author, editor, game designer, musician, and certified evil genius. His short fiction has appeared on Escape Pod, Podcastle, Shattered Shields, Apex Magazine, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Geek Love, and the fabulous Machine of Death. His novel, Death's Heretic, was ranked number three on Barnes & Noble's list of the best fantasy releases of 2011, and a finalist for the Compton Crook Award for Best First Novel, and a 2013 Origins Award. The sequel, The Redemption Engine, was released almost exactly one year ago uh, to rave reviews and accolades. He's published a veritable cornucopia of award-winning game material for both Dungeons & Dragons and the Pathfinder role-playing game. This will come as no surprise when you consider that he's one of the co-creators of Pathfinder and this doubtless contributed to his current status as the managing editor for Paizo Publishing. James, it's a pleasure to have you back in the Roundtable Studios, my friend. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And yes, I'm going to work that blueberries thing to death. Apparently. (laughs) I I have to say, I I might have to take you on that that blueberry challenge because i have a pretty high blueberry tolerance my oh, own damn. everybody it's... wins with the blueberry challenge is what i'm saying yeah, but there are no losers i, I agree yeah. awesome awesome gen con let's get together gen con <laughs> exactly. let's settle this once and for all the blueberry eat off is, is on wheelbarrow <laughs> kitty pool yes absolutely oh it could be no, let's let's just cut this off right now. <laughs> Clearly, we have far too creative a group together. Let's dive into our topic for this roundtable dialogues, which is the influence of gaming 
on speculative fiction. And last out is first up. So, so Master James Sutter, speak unto me of your opinions along these lines, because I, I think this conversation inevitably is going to have to include tie-in fiction, uh, uh, whether it's the Star Wars novels, the the the, the excellent Paizo novels for for Pathfinder, the Black Library for Warhammer 40k, uh, uh, the Numenera novels uh, uh, that Shauna has contributed to. I mean, the tie-in fiction is 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 rife in this community i'm just curious about its impact on the genre at large what what are your opinions sir i think that it has a huge impact on the genre um and you know it's funny because i think sometimes people are reluctant to admit that um but uh, i guess i should you know start off by saying uh for the pathfinder novels um i'm you know, since the line was created, I've been the head editor, you know, commissioning the books, developing them, getting them out there. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I can remember I went through the same sort of process where when I was younger, I, like everybody else, read Dragonlance and Star Wars and Forgotten Realms and, you know, all the different tie-in novels because that's, you know, it's recognizable. It's something you already know you like. You can easily get in. And then when I got, you know, older and started going through my punk phase, I sort of turned up my nose at it and said, oh, well, anything with the logo on it can't be quality because it's, you know, it's selling out and, you know, f- fight the power. Um, <laughs> and I sort of I sort of maintained that sort of, uh, you know, literary snobbery. Um, ironically, it's the same sort of snobbery that people who don't read genre fiction uh, sort of direct towards science fiction fantasy as a whole. Exactly. But, but I held on to that and really until I started working at Paizo and working in games and I started to, you know, realize, you know, there's actually no difference between tie-in fiction and regular fiction. Um, you know, people, people say, oh, well, there's a lot of bad tie-in fiction, but the answer is there's a lot of bad fiction, period. I mean, you know, Sturgeon's <laughs> Law is accurate. And I think that, you know, it, it's hard, right? Because I, I get it. I, and I understand that people are worried that you, the authors are just selling out. But when I see the quality of authors that are writing tie-in fiction, um, you can't look at somebody like Brandon Sanderson or Greg Bear or, you know, <laughs> Nicola Griffith, uh, who, <laughs> you know, who wrote Warhammer novels, right? Like that's, that still blows my mind. You can't look at these people and say, oh, well, they're great when they do, uh, their own stuff, their luminaries, but as soon as they work in a, somebody else's universe, they just lose all their skills. Like, that doesn't make any sense. So then you have to say, well, maybe those books are actually good, and maybe what you have instead is a talented author working within a universe that other talented authors put together, and maybe you actually get a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts, even, potentially. So, James, what you're saying, basically, is that it's 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 not different fiction, it's collaborative fiction. It's a collaborative experience, more so than writing inside the constraints where you have to abandon half of your talent in order to participate. It's absolutely. Tie-in fiction is just shared world fiction, um, and I think that for a lot of authors, you know, it, for some authors, it doesn't work. Some authors want to be in control of every part of the story and every part of the world, and that is fine. But then there are other authors that know, uh, you know, for instance, I've had authors tell me, you know, I'm really – character is my thing or plot is really my thing, and world building is so hard – that they really feel like tie-in frees them to do their best work because 
they know that they don't really like world building, so they can go to a fully formed world, pick up all the parts that they like, and then use that to write a great novel that focuses on their strengths. Um, and I think that there's a, there's a deep seated joy in playing with a franchise <laughs> that you already own. I mean, who doesn't want to write a, you know, grow up wanting to write a Star Wars novel or something, right? Like, sure. You've enjoyed that franchise for so long. Now you can actually immerse yourself and contribute to the, to the, to the canon. That's fabulous. It's an honor. L- let me turn it over to Shauna. Shauna, you've, uh, you've written, novels for the Numenera uh, system, have you not? Uh, I've mostly done short fiction for them. Um, okay. I've edited the novellas that are, uh, some of the novellas that are coming out from Torment, which is the computer version of the Numenera game. Okay. All right. So what's, what's your take on this? Why, why, why does Barnes & Noble relegate 90% of the tie-in fiction to that little ghetto on the end cap uh, while all of the other speculative fiction lounges about on multiple shelves uh, across the store? Well, I think actually that the reason that they do that is pure marketing, but it's actually, I don't think it's a ghetto. I actually think it's a neon sign because they know that, that it, for many people, tie-in novels are the gateway drug to other fiction. <laughs> and I don't say that like it's a bad thing, right? I mean, sure. when you're when you're talking about things like reading are fantastic. Um, and so I think what they know is that people do buy the things that they know. And by putting them in this place where it's really easy to find them, I actually think they're sort of elevating them and saying, you know, here's your neon sign to the things that you might like. Um, and, and, I, and I think that they're hoping that that actually opens the door to them buying more books and exploring it deeper. Okay. Um, so I kind of don't see it as a ghetto so much as I see it as a, as a really strong marketing uh, kind of, I don't want to say ploy, but definitely as a marketing tool. Sure. Sure. Do, do you, what, what's your opinion? Do you, do you feel that tie in fiction that, that, that gaming fiction, well, see, and here I've already kind of derailed our thought here, <laughs> focusing on tie in fiction. Uh, uh, what about the, the, the gaming aspect uh, uh, and its influence on uh, uh, the genre on, on the writing that, that the, the game's, evolve from well i think it's interesting right because we're also seeing games that are coming out of fiction and so here's a novel that someone wrote that's a fantasy thing and then it becomes a game so it's it's a very circular process which i kind of love watching happen um and to me what it says is that people want their enjoyment their entertainment in more varieties than just one right because we think about things differently and i know that a lot of our gamers read the short stories to their players before they start a game. And it's really, so it's offering them a different, more immersive experience. It's, it's telling them sort of, here's the place that, that you are experiencing and here's what it sounds like and here's what it looks like. And you can do that in fiction in ways sometimes that you can't do uh, in an actual game writing setting. And I also think that, you know, the market has, the mar- you know, I was listening to James talk about that and I totally agree with it, that idea that the market actually drives quality. Um, and that like the market has changed, like people won't buy bad tie-in books or if they do, they won't, they, they will not buy them more than once. And I think tie-in and gaming things actually have to work harder to overcome the sort of negative expectation that people walk in the door with. And so people who really want to sell great books, they actually almost have to be a little bit better. Um, I, I really experienced that as an erotica writer, that erotica sort of definitely put in the ghetto or it was when I first started and you had to work harder to overcome people's expectations in the door. And I feel like when I read great gaming or tie-in novels, that same thing is happening, that the authors and the editors know that they have this 
thing that they're fighting against. And in order to do so, they have to make them really amazing. I'm intrigued by your observation about the circular nature of gaming and fiction, because you're absolutely right. I remember when the Amber Diceless game came out, uh, uh, it was like, oh, my God, we can game in this world. Or when, um, oh, was it Evil Hat came out with the Jim Butcher uh, uh Help me, somebody. The Dresden Files. Thank yeah. you. Oh my God, I've just have. To, I got to turn in my geek card at this point. Damn. <laughs> uh, uh, but but there is. I mean, and and you are dealing with a storytelling framework, whether it's gaming or obviously fiction, uh, uh, and that's been going on for a long time. Do you think? I do. I think that sometimes it's under the radar, and I think we're getting to see more of it. Um, you know, we just had Matt Forbach, who's a writer. Uh, just licensed um, our game for his book. So he's using our gaming system to create his book world, um, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> that can happen. And, and it gives readers a, a chance to go, like, right, because it does great things for both reading and gaming. Because if you are a gamer and you go to start reading the tie-in or the gaming fiction, like I said, it's a gateway drug. But if you're just a reader and you're not a gamer, and all of a sudden you pick up this great book and there's a game about it, <laughs> like, so you kind of come in through the back door again in a different way. And, and that just, that sort of tide raises all boats, right? It's a fantastic thing, I think, for, for sort of both of those elements. Absolutely. And, and expands the readership and expands fandom. I couldn't agree more. Andrea, I'm intrigued with your perspective because you you have explored a variety of different storytelling modalities uh, and continue to do so and to find some new ground in that in that realm. What what's your take on this? Are you are you seeing an influence on Specfic from the games and the game experience? I, I do. I, I think it definitely is a, a circular thing where uh, obviously, Tolkien and Conan the Barbarian and Don and On affected the early tabletop games. Uh, I mean, I remember being just a little girl and reading through AD&D books, Legends and Lore, Hades <laughs> and Demigods, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that literature went into shaping the games. And then in return, you know, what came out of the other end was, as you say, Dragonlance. And unfortunately, I think there's a negative effect to this, too, in that... The fantasy that we're seeing out of genre now is increasingly rule-bound. So you're seeing all sorts of really intense mythologies that work like an RPG. Uh, your, your Sanderson novels, sure. for example, where you have a magical system that you don't even need another game to... <laughs> like you, you don't need... The rule set is right there in the novel. You don't need someone else to tell you what the rules are. You you all but have the, the stat charts See, all there for you in the book. I just flashed on on watching... Uh, what was it? Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when they're on that, that cart ride and you're watching this in the movie and you realize, oh, this was for the video game. <laughs> and and so and it's kind of the same thing as you as what you're describing, especially in Sanderson's novels with his magic systems. You're you're seeing this ah, this is primed yeah. for a role playing game. That's intriguing. Yeah, and the end result is we're so accustomed to to writing that way. We're so accustomed to writing, you know, with a classic party where you have the magic user and the warrior and the thief that the imagination becomes limited. Um, and I, I really miss uh, a sense of magical systems that have wonder and mystery to them, where you can't be sure that anything is ever going to work. You can't be sure how any of it works. Um, but obviously you need to have rules to make a game out of it, right? <laughs> sure. Well, and, and you know, I think you just, you just 
tat at least for me you know I, I i will own up to my own prejudice regarding tie-in fiction is is that there is that that limitation that that fitting into a box mm-hmm. that that a book that doesn't ascribe to any game system or video game or whatever is not going to be beholden to this is this is one of the reasons that i i'm a really super huge fan of bioware and of the dragon age games in particular and one of the reasons is because there are a lot of layers of mystery there, even though it's a video game, which is not just rule driven. It's all math, right? Under the, under the hood. It's, it's math. <laughs> but the, the writing has such depth to it. And, and the history in particular has such a, a level of sort of secrecy of unreliability. You can't be really sure that anyone's accounting is correct that it recovers some of that ground from the rule-based <laughs> nature of it. Well, you're almost articulating a, a, a reverse effect, the effect of fiction on gaming, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in that because of the quality of fiction that's out there, the, the especially the video games in particular, I think, have had to up their game to meet audience expectation. No, it's interesting because games get a really bad rap for having terrible narrative. But was it, was it James that said... Right at, right at the beginning, most fiction is bad. Most yeah. stories are bad. And <laughs> yeah. so it makes sense that most game stories are bad, too. But the ones that, that have <laughs> a good story. The ones that are great stick with you. I mean, if you look sure. at all of the films that came out in 1973, you're only going to come up with a couple of really great winners that last the test of time. So I don't understand why you want to look at 2013 and insist that all games are terrible and there's no narrative potential there whatsoever because there were only, you know, maybe two or three standout games that might last the test of time as well. Uh, I think that's a commentary more on reviewers <laughs> than the actual truth. And that's a whole different podcast. Yeah. So let me, let me turn it over to Michael. Michael, um, one, one thought that's occurred to me as, as this discussion has unfolded is there are a lot of authors out there who are gamers Vehemently so. I know. I know. Mike Cole, Saladin Ahmed, uh, uh, Patrick Rothfuss, uh, Wesley Chu. I mean, these guys are are hardcore gamers at heart. Uh, that can only affect their fiction. Uh, so, so what's your take on all of this? As as a gamer and an author, is is it circular? Is there an influence from the game into the story? Yeah, I think for for myself certainly, and from what I can tell from other authors. Um, there's a lot of storytelling training and kind of like narrative apprenticeship that many of us conducted through gaming. I know that, yeah. you know, I was a gamer before I was a writer. You know, I started playing tabletop games at about nine and I wrote my first fan fiction of Warhammer 40k Eldar at like 13 or 14. <laughs> so I was always, I was always a gamer before I was a writer for, for a long time. And what I think you get in gaming is you get, a lot of what tie-in fiction offers that, that James has mentioned, where here's a tool set, here's a world and some structures. So ha- some of your work is already done. Therefore, you can focus on developing certain subsections of craft. You can learn how to develop and inhabit a nuanced character, how to fit one character's story into other characters, how to use a character's set of capabilities to overcome challenges that are posed to you. And that lets you, as a storyteller, kind of focus on a couple of elements of craft. And then if you want to go from gaming to writing, which some and many do, but it doesn't have to always be that kind of teleology. Um, the other thing I think you can see, and this runs a little bit uh, counter to, to some of what we said before, is that 
in tabletop, I've noticed that there's a really big freedom and openness to just straight up copy stuff because it's fun and you love it. <laughs> I remember, you know, I know as a gamer, I would always, you know, I'd be running a game of Legend of the Five Rings and then I just blatantly steal something from Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> and you just kind of mix and match and you grab stuff because you're only ever performing for your colleagues, for your co-collaborators. So you don't need to follow IP or whatever. So you're doing what Michel Sarto calls textual poaching. And I came to that theory mostly through Henry Jenkins and his writing about fan fiction and fan culture. And textual poaching is the idea that uh, you go into other people's territories and you steal stuff from them and then you put it to your own use. And in these cases, it's it's a theft without a crime because the, the the taking of that IP material doesn't dilute the the brand or kind of deprive anyone else of value. But then you get to have that thing that you already have affect for and you build it and you add your own creativity to it. And I think that's a great starting point for a writer to absorb influence and then contextualize it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, even if it's just exercise writing, even if it's just a, a, an exploration of, of that transition from, from a gaming modality into a literary one, uh, uh, as you say, there's the, the set pieces are there and, and you don't have to build everything from a whole cloth. Um, yeah. But doesn't that also lead to uh, is, is there a concern for derivative fiction is does, does it uh, well and I guess the market will bear it out. You know, if it's good, it'll sell. If not, it won't. Uh, uh, but but the, and I see I, 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 I see really derivative fiction selling a ton of copies. <laughs> there is that. There is that. If there's something that you love so much, you'll tolerate even an inferior knockoff, and you'll pony <laughs> down your money for the inferior knockoff just to have the chance of recapturing the feeling of the thing you love mm-hmm. for a little while, even if it's not as good. You kind of don't care. Sure. Well, and I guess you could argue that, you know, the, the notion of the series, which is so very popular in speculative fiction, uh, uh, is is using kind of the same uh, vibe as tie-in fiction. It just happens to be a tie-in to the last book. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not a tie-in to a game or, or, or some experience like that, but, but that same instinct for readers to want to continue enjoying an experience whether it was literary or a video game or a tabletop game it's persistent <laughs> uh, uh across the across the genre that's intriguing and that's where fan fiction comes from too isn't it this this idea that there's something you love so much that when you run out you have to start making your own sure sure now shauna you as the as the lead editor for numenera uh, uh, obviously, you've got a deep and abiding love for the world. Uh, what, what was your experience like as you transitioned from, uh, you know, I assume, well, here's my first question. Is the mindset for creating a, a, a storytelling role-playing game uh, different from writing stories in that role-playing game? For me, it's, it's very different. Um, I was When James was talking about writers who have a hard time world building, I'm actually the exact opposite. World building is my forte and characters are my forte and plot is, is just I am abysmal. <laughs> so, so game writing for me is so easy, right? Because you're just making characters and worlds. You don't have to plot anything because that's what the players do. Um, and so I'm also really bad at writing in other people's worlds because I want to make the world. I want to be like, well, let's just make this up. I, what do you mean I have to research? That sounds awful. <laughs> so for me, like getting to create a world and then getting to create fiction within it is kind of the best of all amazing things <laughs> compiled together. Um, 
And so I get, even though, you know, of course they're still plotting and that's, that sucks. Like if I could just get rid of plotting, I would write all the time, every day, all the things. <laughs> um, but, but for me, it's a really different. So when I write fiction, when I, I am creating the, you know, if I'm writing fiction in a world, I don't have to create the world. So I create the characters and the plot. But if I'm writing a game, I'm creating the world and the characters. And so it's a really different mindset in terms of one says to the player, you know, one gives the player a, a hard choice and the other gives a character a hard choice. And those are really different um, ways of operating for me. Okay. All right. James, let me ask you. Um, yeah. And, and I, I don't want to invoke awards as a criteria for goodness in fiction. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm, I'm racking my brain and trying to think of, well, no, I guess some of the Timothy Zahn Star Wars books. Uh, uh, received some accolades, but in general, I don't see uh, uh, the fiction of Thai and fiction receiving no. those. No, and that's one of those things. You know, I, every every year when I see people lose their marbles over, you know, the Hugos or the Nebulas or whatever. Um, well, well, that's actually a lot of that is totally unrelated to the works themselves. Right. But, uh, I do think that it is a fine point that there, there are some just whole swaths of the genre that will never get into the award circles or have a very hard time getting into the award circles because of that same kind of literary snobbery for lack of a better, uh, for lack of a better term. Like, you know, the people who, uh, pride themselves on being tastemakers within the genre, uh, often look down on tie-in fiction, um, which doesn't make any sense because then you'll turn right around and those same authors create our own stuff uh, will get held up as, you know, these these darling gems. And it's like, dude, the same person sat there for the same amount of time <laughs> typing, <laughs> typing those books. Um, and I think, I, I really think there's just not as much of a difference between the two as people want to think, um, you know, and it depends, right? Because there's different types of tie-in writing. Like what we've been talking about so far is primarily game tie-in writing where it's really shared world fiction. And, right. you know, shared world within a game is really no different than shared world like the old Thieves World series or things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, writing or, you know, I mean, I, I hesitate to call Brandon Sanderson finishing off the Wheel of Time shared world, uh, but it's, you know, it, it borders that. You right? could argue that, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think that um, there are some aspects, like if you're doing a novelization of a movie, that is also tie, uh, you know, tie in fiction, and I think that is more restrictive because. You know, you're, you're given the script and told, turn this into a book. Um, and I still think that writers can do a great job with that. Um, but that's obviously going to be, your, your hands are going to be more tied than if, like, for instance, when I am commissioning novels from my authors, what I do is I give them our setting book and say, hey, this is the world of Pathfinder. What stories would you want to tell here? Like, what nations call to you? What monsters call to you? And then we really build it from this sort of ground-up organic process. So the only real difference is that I'm I'm giving them a a world and a framework for the magic system, um, and that's pretty much it. They can tell all sorts of different types of stories. And I actually think, as a counterpoint to what Andrea was saying earlier, yes, writing in a magic system, especially 
ones as complicated and sort of structured as, say, Pathfinder or Dungeons & Dragons or one of those, it can be limiting when you say, oh, well, this character can't do this because she's the wrong level for it. That right, can be right. restrictive, but at the same time, I do think, um, and I know, uh, you know, Sanderson's spoken a lot about this. I do think that there is value to imposing structure on your magic because it helps you avoid the Deus Ex Machina, you know, <laughs> right. of just being able to say, well, magic fixes it. You know, magic. You know, they couldn't cast the spell earlier, but oh, now suddenly they can. Um, I think readers have really been conditioned to say, well. Why? Like, yeah. if they could, if if magic could solve all the problems, why did we have this story? Sure. Um, so I think I think it does often behoove us. And nothing says that you can't have you know magical realism or you know fairy magic where magic can do everything. But uh, I do think that some structure can be really helpful, um, especially depending on the type of author you are. I know that I absolutely have the you know the terror of the blank page so if somebody comes to me and says write a story i freeze up you know i have too much options but if somebody says hey i need you to write a story about uh werewolves in space i'll have it done on monday right um sure so i think that uh having those seed pearls where you can flip through and go oh that looks cool i want to <laughs> do that that can be really helpful, and it doesn't even have to be tie-in writing. I mean, I I often find that like um, my roommate buys those Spectrum uh, catalogs that are the sort of a lot of the best fantasy art that was published in the previous right, year. Right. And I flip through those, and I figure if I ever if I ever quit having a day job and don't have enough ideas for things to write, I could just flip through one of those and write a story based on every picture in there. And sure. I would be happy forever. Well, and art is a form of storytelling just as well, and good art tells that story, and, and a writer's impulse would then be to grab it and run with it. Well, well and actually, I guess, you know, you could say whether it's art or uh, RPGs or video games, um, art begets art. Yeah. I think that when you're inspired by something, uh, you know, whether it's something you own or something that you found somewhere else, um, it it pushes you to make more art, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Andrea, let me ask you, um, getting back to the, 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 the notion, and we're kind of coming at this from the back direction now, uh, <laughs> uh, of the influence of gaming on speculative fiction. Now, your, your debut novel comes out May 5th, uh, and obviously you are a gamer. Uh, how has gaming, in, in your opinion, influenced this novel that's that's coming out and is going to be seeded into the world and, and infecting people with all sorts of wonderful feelings. Uh, well, one of the things I, I think about a lot is the fact that the things that we do in our leisure time are really seldom reflected in a novel. Hmm. So there's a, a moment in this particular book where the protagonist is, is kind of hiding in a corner at a party and playing with her phone. Um, she's playing Candy Crush. And <laughs> her, her trick here is, is whenever anyone comes to bother her, she looks at them and says, the system is down. And she points at her phone like she's doing something really important. <laughs> Until someone leans over and notices she is, in fact, playing Candy Crush. <laughs> um, and that's the sort of thing that you, you don't see reflected. Games are very important to us these days. We spend tens and hundreds of hours a year playing games uh candy crush or or even you know the bioware games and halo and call of duty you know madden whatever this year is 2015 is that what year it is sure <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and 
people in books don't play games very often. There are a few very notable examples. Ender's Game has a game. Actually, it has a whole bunch of games. Sure. Um, uh, there's a really lovely novel, Constellation Games, um, which is all about making video games. But in your typical novel, people don't watch television. They don't really watch movies. They don't consume media. And it's interesting that such an important part of our lives isn't really reflected. Yeah, but those are kind of boring parts of a, a, of a day, aren't they? I no. object. <laughs> um, they, 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 they influence you and your emotional state and what you think and how you feel. Uh, we're we're made by the media that we consume. So the fact that none of that is ever mentioned in, in you know, a book is, is a little weird. Excellent point. Absolutely true. Go, actually, I'm going to give it over to Michael real quick. He did. He did lodge an objection on the table. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really a, a whole central premise to to my Reyes series is is a character and a community for whom games and their their kind of what would be leisure passions for other people are their defining kind of aspects of the reality and the way that shared collaborative culture, storytelling, and passions inform the way that you view the world. You know, I've got. Uh, the main character gives stat blocks in a D&D style to the people that she meets because that's a way that she interprets the world. So very much to, to Andrea's point, I think that's it's something that, especially within SF&F, I would expect to see more com- be more common just because of how much of an overlap is. But gaming is so mainstream that it could very vi- you know viably be everywhere. And we do have a couple of very notable instances like Ready Player One or Scott Pilgrim. Right. Because right. um, it's, you know, geek culture is out there everywhere. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it pop up really in any other kinds of uh, media or storytelling. Sure. It's evolving almost its own subgenre when you think about it. Absolutely. James, what were you going to say? Oh, you know, I don't want to take the conversation too far from science fiction, but uh, I was just <laughs> reading some studies the other day that where they, you know, in clinical trials, you know, it's been proven that games actually induce empathy for other people, not only at the sort of the level you might imagine where it helps you, uh, you know, playing as someone else helps you understand someone else and get inside their head, but also just they've they've shown that we're kind of hardwired to when when working together feel better about the people that we're working with. Um, so they've shown, like, you put two strangers in a room, they they feel really anxious around each other. But you have them play something like Rock Band for even 10 minutes, and suddenly their stress levels are the same as if they were in the room with a good friend of theirs, right? It doesn't take that much to get us beyond sort of the primate stranger danger um, <laughs> fight. But that's, that is going in a sociological direction. We're here to talk about high-end fiction. That's, that's, that's brilliant. Though. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I would argue that, you know, Grand Theft Auto may not foster empathy, uh, but in general, yeah, I can absolutely see that. Now, Shauna, in, in the context of, of your oeuvre of, of, of writing, uh, you, you've spanned multiple genres, including erotica, where, where gameplay, roleplay, uh, uh, and, and that I'd hesitate to invoke gaming culture, but there is, I would imagine, sort of a, a, a gamer quality to that. Uh, is is that an impact or an influence in in other areas of writing for you? Um, I think that it, well, yeah, that's it. That's a really complicated question. <laughs> um, but I think the the truth is that my subjects are sex and death, and so <laughs> when <laughs> when it comes to things like erotica or gaming or whatever it is that I'm writing, those are sort of the places that I come from. Right. That be, and the reason is because those are the two moments in our lives 
when I feel like we have the opportunity to truly be ourselves um, and to really connect with each other. And whether we choose to or not is is, a, is an important part of every character's arc, like every life arc, right? And so, you know, that's true in gaming because we because we see that the, the conflict, the combat, the moments of of death, right? That choice that we make, and it's true in erotica. And so, there's a, there's sort of a through line of those two topics in in most things that I write. But I think that they they do influence each other. Um, when you look at the community itself, the community around erotica, and particularly around the kink community, is all about um, being yourself, right? You have to be able to communicate well. You have to get over your fears. You have to sort of put yourself out there and say, these are the things I'm interested in. And I feel like that the geek gaming culture has a lot of similarities to that. And there's actually a lot of crossover. Like, I'm surprised how often gamers come up to me and say, hey, I loved your erotica stuff or, or <laughs> vice versa. Right? I didn't know that that community was quite so crosswired until I started hearing from other people who, who knew me from a different spectrum. And I love that so much. I think it's just such a wonderful uh, way of interacting. Well, and interestingly, the, the same qualities that you described for that community could, could also be the same challenges that a young writer uh, has to embrace and deal with in order to excel in their craft. So there's there's a lot of overlay involved in 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 all of these communities. This is intriguing. Yeah, absolutely. I see it in my students, my writing students who come to me, and and the things that they are writing are very safe, and they're afraid to write dangerously because it's such a scary place. Um, and so they try to like they try to skirt that continually. But until they start opening up, until they start saying, "I'm at a place where I'm vulnerable. What what is my response?" Right? We we can't. It's harder to get good stuff out of them. Because um, they're operating from a place of fear, which I think is true in all of those in all of those spaces. Sure, sure, and and natural when you move into a a zone where where judgment and and uh, is is so p- potential. The potential for judgment is so strong. Sure, so, rejection, right? That's yeah, the biggest fear, no matter what we're doing. I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, let me let me throw throw out one last question here. Uh, uh, in terms of the influence of gaming on specfic, and obviously as as this conversation has evolved, vice versa, the the influence of specfic on gaming. Casting your eyes ahead, because all of you are in this game for the long haul. Uh, uh, what do you see coming up for this 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 crossover, this 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 cross contamination, cross pollination of of gaming culture and and literature, speculative fiction? Andrea, I I, I want to lead off with you because your your connection, your games, uh, your stories. I'm going to say not just games, but your stories are are connected so intimately to community and and so vital to that that give and take in the collaboration of the reader and the story. I, I'd be very interested to get your take on what you see the future of gaming's influence on specfic might look like this is going to be an extremely biased answer (laughs) (laughs) i I apologize in advance understood Um, so there's been a lot of talk over the last few years about gamification um about putting context over the things that you do in your everyday life to make them seem more valuable more exciting to make you want to go to the gym more or longer or eat more vegetables or remember to water your plants every week or See, whatever zombie run right yeah. so so zombies run actually does a different thing that's not that's not gamification it's storification it's taking that run that you were going to take and putting 
um, not points on top of it, but an actual story on top of ah, it. So okay. that instead of just running down the street, you are on a mission to go and rescue a little girl who's stranded <laughs> in the middle of the woods. And, and so instead of just sweating along as you huff and puff, suddenly you're heroic. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly there's more value to what you're doing. So I, I actually foresee uh, a sort of fusion of story and game and everyday life where the things that you do are more heroic or more valuable. They're, they're important in a way that, that is far beyond the context of your actual, real, ordinary, safe, comfortable life. That's intriguing. And I can totally see that. I'm, you know, I'm looking, looking at uh, Ingress and, and games along those lines. And, and they are. They're permeating through. And, and you, you start adapting your life to that, mm-hmm. to, to engage with that. That's awesome. That's like a Maslow um, hierarchy completion question uh, on a really broad societal level. You know, as the kind of base level of quality of life increases around the world, um, from that framing, which, you know, you can agree or not agree with, uh, which may be a separate conversation, <laughs> you know, there's, there's more, maybe more of a, an inclination or a desire or maybe a need to, to grant context, grant meaning to the parts of your experience that are not kind of, uh, live or die. And that kind of addition, adding a layer of context, as Andrea really, uh, adeptly put, I think that that may be something that we see as a question that comes up more broadly, you know, and you've got a huge dilution and diversification of leisure interest, but the overall amount of money spent on leisure is about the same or going up. And I think that there's just an infinite number of ways that people are looking for or making for themselves to make life have a reason, whether that's a fandom, whether it's, uh, you know, a hobby, whether it's a, a creative endeavor, there's there's always that. So what or why? Why life? Sure. What's the value? What's 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 the payoff? So so so, Michael, for, for your take, looking forward, gaming, influencing storytelling, storytelling, influencing gaming. What uh, are, are you are you declaring squarely in Andrea's camp or, or is there are there other visions that you have for that? I, I don't disagree with anything in Andrea's camp. Um, for me, I I mostly think that we're going to see clustering of affect around uh, authors and around worlds mm. where, you know, you've got, there's kind of, there was a, a lot of buzz in the, in the media and academic media world around transmedia storytelling, which Andrea can certainly speak to at length, uh, I'm sure. But like, there's a whole, like, I think, I think it's maybe a going to be a different kind of thing where, Assassin's Creed is a really, really well-known brand globally, or the Marvel universes mm-hmm. are really well-known globally. And then there's an infinite number of ways to use those really well-known th- things to be generative for story and for people to be able to put themselves into it and see themselves in it. And I, I see a lot of activity along those lines where maybe really well-known brands get even bigger but then you can build a reputation by creating a world that is generative through games or that is evocative for fan fiction or something else like that. Absolutely. Excellent. I totally see that. Shana, what about you? Uh, uh, especially looking forward, uh, I mean, with, with Numenera and, and uh, the Cypher system and the, the worlds that are being engendered from there, uh, what, what are you seeing looking forward as, as games and, and spec fic uh, continue to, to cross-feed each other? 
I sort of see two things, and one is exemplified by uh, I've been watching House of Cards, and in that yes. show, the president plays a video game, and by playing the video game, he discovers something that he wants to do for the country. And I thought that was such a poignant moment. <laughs> like, you know, it, it it's not spec fic, right? It is straight up, you know, um, reality storytelling, and here is the influence of a game in that in, in, in our country, right? In fiction. And I thought that was just such a wonderful moment of crossover. Yeah. There's this sort of high end thing that's happening where, where games are kind of coming up into all of the other things and infiltrating that. And, and I don't know what that looks like yet, but I think it's a pretty cool thing that I'm kind of keeping my eye on. <laughs> um, and then the other side of that is I think that we're going to see a lot more immersion. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, when we're talking about big companies like Marvel and things like that who have books and movies and, and posters and, you know, games and all these other things. But because of the way that technology is going and because of things like crowdfunding, we're also going to start seeing much smaller companies have this sort of immersive experience for their fans. Like I know that for us with Numenera, right, we have, so we have a game, so we have a role-playing game, we have a computer game, we have a movie coming out next year, uh, we have a two collections of short stories. We're working on novels uh, for next year. Um, we have a board game. We have card games. So that, so we're getting this. Our, our fans want this really immersive experience, and we're able to provide that in a way now that we weren't, you know, even five years ago. And so I think we're going to see a lot more smaller, um, less known uh, companies who are willing to take risks who are going to offer this sort of immersive experience where you can get fiction and you can get games and you can really sink into this world um, and sort of escape, right? Our, our world in reality is a very tough place right now. Yeah. I think a lot of people are struggling uh, with the struggling with the internet, they're struggling with real life. And so I think that we're going to see this ability to escape into another world that comes from all sides. Yeah, yeah, and and I'll be intrigued also to see the influence on culture of that immersion because because we respond so differently to when when you know when you walk out of a movie. I just I just watched Fast and Furious Seven, and and you watch out of that walk out of that movie, and I noticed I'm a little lead foot on the pedal as I'm driving down the street after watching Fast and the Furious because I've been immersed in that world for the last two hours, and and when that experience extends beyond that, beyond just a two hour. Taste, but you know, as Andrea and, and Michael described, these these moments throughout your day where you're touching the story and it's infecting, uh, affecting, not infecting. Although there's that too, uh, <laughs> affecting you. Uh, uh, how does that change you? I'm 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 with you, Shauna. That's 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 going to be an intriguing transformation. James, what about you? As as you look forward, uh, uh, what, I'm I'm actually kind of double curious. What are you What are you thinking about in terms of? I don't know if you can speak to any of Paizo's plans, but also uh, your own vision. Just looking forward as as a participant in this, what do you see coming down the line? So what I see from RPGs uh, in particular is sort of, uh, and I think this is going to be a continuation of what we've seen for the last 30, 40 years with RPGs, which is that I think that playing RPGs encourages active versus passive participation in media. Mm. Um, and I think that one thing that's interesting about my job as uh, you know a setting designer, as an author, um, is that 
my entire audience thinks they can do my job. Like, <laughs> like train people because uh, because RPGs are a thing where you have a game master and you say, "Here's all the tools. You build the story. You tell the story." Um, we actively promote that creativity. It's not sit down in your chair and watch this show that we made prepackaged for you. It's no, no, no. We gave you the ingredients. You have to create the story yeah. or create the experience. And I think that that. Uh, gives people a huge amount of confidence. I think that makes them say, well, I've been GMing for 10 years. Of course I can create my own campaign setting. Of course <laughs> I can change my campaign journal into a novel. You know, like, I can do all these things. And I think that that little, like, writing as a career, writing period, requires hubris. You have to believe that your story <laughs> is is worth telling is more interesting than whatever the next person is telling themselves, right? Like it, it takes that certain level of, uh, of guts to put yourself out there. And I think that we're seeing more and more people. I mean, right now I look around at the people writing, especially fantasy right now. And I think that it's hard to find one of them that hasn't in some way been influenced by RPGs um, in, in some fashion. It's just too prevalent. And I think that it's actually a really good thing because people are going to get in there. They're going to be more likely to put their stuff out there. And I also think that because of the amount of stuff that's been put out there for games, people are going to make, uh, you know, they've got a little more in the way of examples when it comes to world building or creating nuanced magic systems, things like that. Not that every story needs that, but I think that, you know, once upon a time, like I, so I used to read a lot more pulps and stuff when Paizo was doing planet stories. Um, and while there was a lot of creativity there, a lot of stuff felt very, uh, sort of shallow to me in the world building because there'd been so little done at that point that you could kind of do, you could kind of do anything and just yeah. say, they're on Mars and everybody went, whoa, my brain's exploding. <laughs> audiences now won't stand for that. Like they want in-depth world building. Um, and you can go to games like like Numenera, like Pathfinder, like all of these different games and pick up whole setting books that are designed to intrigue you. And you can pick that apart and say, what what tricks are they using? Like everything I know about world building, um, I learned from working in RPGs and stuff like uh, The Unexplained Illusion is such a powerful tool. And I love it, you know, Cyberpunk uses this a lot, China Mieville, stuff like that, but where you just drop something evocative in and then don't explain it. You just say, oh, and in this sea is where the the poet whales sing their uh, deep koans, you know, and then you never mention it again. And people come up to you at a convention, you know, two years later and say, but what were the poet whales talking about? And, and the answer is, I, I don't have to know. I probably don't know, but I made you think about it, and your brain created this whole story. Sorry, you tell me. Exactly, and that's the beauty of that sort of thing. So I think that, um, yeah, I think games are going to continue to push us forward. That's intriguing, and 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 the, I really glommed on the on the notion of empowerment, and and the empowerment that comes from gaming, and and the building, and the 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 architecture, the architect impulse, because that's so prevalent in in Pinterest, in Facebook, in every social media framework uh, uh, that's out there. The the notion of people building their community, their world, whether you are whether you're rolling d twenties or not, you're gaming in those environments, and and building those worlds. That's fascinating. 
Well, dear friends, this has been exceptional. Uh, uh, I, I personally can count at least three epiphanies and two aha moments uh, uh, for which I am deeply grateful. Dear friends, I'm sure you got the same. I want to extend a deep vote of appreciation to to my, my constellation of stellar luminaries, James Sutter, Andrea Phillips, Shauna Germain, and Michael R. Underwood. All of you, thank you so much for making the time. This has been fabulous. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, friends, the Roundtable podcast feed picks up on its regular schedule. I hope you certainly enjoyed the awesomeness of this particular discussion. And, uh, you know, we do have the, the message board, the forums now at the Roundtable podcast website, www.roundtablepodcast.com. Check it out. Add your thoughts. Expand on the discussion. We can continue this rocking on. We're going to sign off now. But until we meet again, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Dialogues is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it all you want. You can even use portions of it in your own derivative works. Just make sure you release those works under the same licensing terms and you cite Wonder Thing Studios as the source. We'd like to extend our deep appreciation to our guests for this roundtable dialogue, Michael R. Underwood, Shauna Germain, James Sutter, and Andrea Phillips. This was an inspired discussion, and we so appreciate your generosity of spirit and your enthusiasm in sharing your views and perspectives. The Roundtable podcast feed continues next Tuesday, but until then, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.